I'm about to answer a whole bunch of questions related to theology, apologetics, and the Christian life. And you might not have interest in all of these questions. So what I've done is I've made an actual little map in the video description. So click down, show more, and look at that video description. And you'll see a list of every question I'm going to answer in this video, along with a little timestamp that can take you straight to that answer. So that if you don't want to watch this whole video all the way through start to finish, you can get straight to the content that you're most interested in because this is my first Q&A video and I want to make sure that I start just hit the ground running and I make it as useful as possible for you guys because I love Q&A but I don't always have the same question as, as the other guy has so uh, yeah so check that out and if you want to just join with me step by step through the entire video you're more than welcome to do that so I'm Mike Winger and this is my YouTube channel where I try to deal with uh, careful, thoughtful theology, apologetics, and Christian life issues. I do verse by verse teaching and all sorts of other things. You can check it out if you so desire. Um, I got these questions actually from you guys a few days ago. I put up a comment on YouTube, uh, a post asking you to give me your questions and I was sort of overwhelmed with how many questions I got and I'm gonna answer as many as possible. If you were one of those who asked a question, you might wanna check in the, in the video description, see if your answer's in here, because if I didn't get a chance to answer your question because of lack of time, uh, then what I want you to know is that you're not gonna have to listen to this whole video to find that out. Now, uh, let's just jump straight into it. The first question we have today is from Jumping Moose, and the question is, uh, hi, can you give advice on how a teen or young adult can witness to their family? how they can witness their family. And what I've done, uh, Jumping Moose, is I've sat down and thought through this issue a little bit, and I have actually nine pieces of advice that I wanna give to you or anyone who might be in your situation. First, let me just say this, I've been in your situation. I was the the young adult, the, the teenager, 12, 13, 14 and up, you know, who got saved and my family's not walking with Jesus at the time. So, um, so the first thing I'll say is this, uh, the most important piece of advice is have godly character. Um, you can't look to change them more than God is changing you. Does that make sense? So just have godly character. Let that be the number one thing. Never compromise your walk and that will be a light to your family as well. Um, number two, I'll say this is, is uh, the, the pressure as you're around family who is engaging in ungodly behaviors um, because they're not walking with Jesus. It, the pressure is to conform, to become a little bit like that. And I want to encourage you, love them. Don't, don't, you know, don't cut them out of your heart or nothing crazy like that. Love them more, in fact, because of Christ. But but don't conform to their ways. Watch that your life doesn't start to mimic the life of those you're around. Because the Bible says bad company corrupts good character, and so you, you don't want to you don't want to get to a place where you're absorbing the ungodliness that's around you. Uh, so I'd encourage you make sure you're being discipled. Make sure you're you're spending time with godly, mature believers who will help you with that as well. Uh, number three, don't fight every battle. This is kind of a big deal. You're going you're gonna to be able to disagree with them all the time about so many issues. So you're just going to pick the issues that matter the most. Like, okay, I'm, I'm going to let that go. I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to say nothing about that issue. But this issue, this is really important. This is a big deal. So I'm going to fight this battle. I'm, I'm going to open my mouth and even disagree or offer a, a question or a correction of some kind humbly. Um, so pick your battles. Don't fight every battle. Number four, don't be a pacifist. Okay, so uh, obviously those who fight every battle, they're like warmongers. They're attacking on every issue. They're constantly disagreeing. You're wrong about that. You're wrong about that. 
Um, and that's probably not the best way to do it. Also, don't be a pacifist. The pacifist is the one who uh, says, um, let your let your actions speak louder than words. And what they really mean is don't ever say anything with your words. Um, so yes, do fight battles. Like do actually have the courage to simply share the gospel, to stand up and communicate truth with your family and know that while it may feel like they can't change or they'll never change, um, the gospel is the seed. Remember the parable of the sower? The gospel is the seed and you've got to throw the seed out and the soil responds and that's not on you. That's on the soil. But you keep throwing the seed. You don't just ignore it and say, what's the point? So uh, four is don't be a pacifist. Number five is know your family. Know your family. Uh, what I'm saying here is like maybe your family has specific reasons why they are, are not willing to go to church or maybe going to church but not willing to give their lives to Christ. So you know them so well and you can use this to your advantage. Think about what matters to them. Think about ways and, and things that would be more effective in, in ministering to them. Sometimes you look at your family and all you see is the roadblocks. But what you have to know is you know them so well, you should also know where the where the doors are or the windows to climb through. Uh, so use your wisdom and your knowledge of your family to be able to reach out to them uh, in a loving way. So know your family. And number six is... Um, have an attitude of hopefulness and invitation when you're dealing with your family. Sometimes it can become like the, the battles like this, but as, as Christians, we, you know, maybe the world comes at us with a fist, but we come with an open hand. We grab that fist and we just try to pull them over to our side because we're always invitational. You don't want to be butting heads with your family like this. You want to be trying to catch what's going on and pull them your way. Um, you, you don't just want to show them that you know what's right you want to invite them to what's true. Always, it's an invitation. Keep that in mind as you're interacting with them because it can easily go the other direction. Uh, number seven, number seven, I'll say this, uh, jumping moose, uh, don't make stuff up. Don't make up anything. Now, sometimes someone will hit you with a challenge to your faith and you, you will just come up with a solution off the top of your head. You don't know if it's quite true or not. I encourage you to pause there. Don't answer the challenge if you don't know how. You know, go Google it. Go do some research on your own. You can hit me up, and if I have time, I'll answer those questions if, if possible, although I often don't have time to answer uh, the comments. But, but just don't make stuff up, whatever you do. Because here's the thing. The minute you sort of fabricate a solution that may or may not really be good, um, what, what happens is they think, and if they prove you're wrong on that, now they think all your other truths are equally true as that one false one. So we have to have like a reputation of just such integrity and such honesty and such truthfulness and factualness that it will help give credence to the spiritual things we're trying to communicate to others. Uh, number eight, number eight is pray. I'd encourage you to pray. Pray, pray, pray. Never stop praying for your family. Prayer is powerful. Prayer impacts people's lives. And I've seen it happen in my own family where when I was diligent to pray for them, I watched things shift and change in their lives. So I encourage you, don't get discouraged. Don't stop praying. Luke 18 verse 1, Jesus says, or it says in the scripture about Jesus that he told them a parable that men should always ought to pray and not lose heart. So don't lose heart in your prayer for your family. Don't get discouraged in that. Keep on going with it. Uh, and uh, number nine is just my encouragement to you, being a teen who has, um, has family who are not believers, is make sure you're in fellowship. Uh, your family might even get upset about you being in fellowship. In my experience as a youth leader, usually when, when a kid gets saved and comes to church, the family's initially happy because the kid's behavior gets better, right? But... But, and maybe you're in college, whatever age you're in, um, but the, the thing is that after a while, that 
that kid who they thought, oh, good, you're doing better. Now they see them as an example they're not following and they feel convicted. So they start to not like the fact that the kid goes to church or the teen or the, or the college student. And so then they want to come against it and discourage it. I encourage you to make fellowship a real priority in your life and do whatever you can to make sure you're still plugged in because you need this very badly. Where else will you get discipled? Your family's not going to do it. So, um, so Jumping Moose, that's my counsel to you. Let's go to uh, question number two. This is from Christina. Christina's Creative Commons who says, Hello, Mike. Uh, what verses would you recommend? Maybe one you wouldn't expect or isn't commonly used to help shine some light on comprehending being in eternity with God. So this question is about being in eternity with God. Also, in your biblical understanding, how can salvation be lost, if at all? Or actually, I'm, now forgive me, I'm not going to get into that issue today. It's, I'm going to do a whole video on that one of these days. So I hope you forgive me on that. Um, but I'm going to focus on this eternity question. Now, the short answer is this. I don't think that we will be quote, with God in eternity. I don't think that's the way we should we should phrase it. I don't think we're going to enter into a state of eternity. And though we, we sometimes call this the eternal state, but we just mean the state that lasts forever, not the state that is in a place or timelessness of called eternity. So we will not be with God in eternity. We will be with God for eternity. And that's the difference. It just means that from the moment I'm with God, that's never going to end. Time will go on forever. It will just continue ticking, ticking, ticking. That's what's going to happen. Now, that's my view, and I'm going to try to support this with scripture. Um, first, I will say this. God's existence, he, he ha- he's not just really old, right? For God, he is, he is um, you might say he's in eternity, but I think maybe a more accurate way, a more careful way to say it is God transcends time. He's transcendent beyond time. He doesn't require time. Uh, I can't even say he's before time because before time would be what? A moment before time, but there wouldn't be, there's just not in time. There's transcending time and that's how I would describe God. Now I'm different than that. My existence necessitates time. I need time to exist. Uh, I, I do things, you know, from one moment to the next. If time stopped, I would, I guess I wouldn't be doing anything. I wouldn't be able to have any thoughts or any progression of any kind. So God, when he interacts with humans, although he transcends time, God interacts with us in time. And I think that that is how he's always going to interact with us. This is my opinion, but now I'd like to share scripture with you. So his, his nature, his essential nature is, is beyond time, but he interacts with us in time. Uh, Revelation 21, let me actually uh, take you guys to this passage. Uh, Revelation chapter 21 and in verse uh, 23 starting in verse 23. So it says, and the city, speaking of our eternal, you know, destination, our eternal, uh, uh, as in never ending state, um, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. So there's no need of light. God himself is there. His presence provides light by its light. Will the nations walk and the kings of the earth bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. So there's day, but there's not night. I'll explain this in a moment. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So there's no there, there's day, but there's no night. Well, why is there no night? Some would say, well, this is eternity. We're in like an, a frozen state of day time. But that's, that's not what it says. The reason why there's no night is because God is there. 
God's providing light. Light is constant, so there's no night as in no time of darkness for 12 hours or however many hours. Um, that's what it's saying. So night corresponds to light here, not time. Um, there's a lot of time, actually. In fact, if you read on, the next chapter in Revelation 22 talks about this. Let's read verses 1 through 5. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and, the, and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street and of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. So now this is this is the eternal state being described, and there's, um, there's months. The tree's yielding its fruit each month. Now, some would say this is picturesque language and all that, but the point is that it's time language that's being used. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And so, again, we have this idea that, um, that there's no night, as in no darkness, just light, uh, just a time of light because God's presence brings light. His glory is shining. So there's a closeness and nearness with God that goes far beyond what we've experienced in the past. And there is time. Um, so God, he definitely possesses eternity in the fullest sense. But we uh, we live in time and he interacts with us in time. And I don't think that that's ever going to end. So I, I hope that makes sense to you. Um, all right. So I, the next question is from Christian. And Christian says... Here we go. Uh, can you please make a video on the seeming paradox between between God's omniscience and man's free will? It's an issue that's been distressing me lately. Let me just say this. Um, I know exactly what you mean when you say an issue that distresses you. Um, this doesn't really happen to me anymore, but for a long time, whenever I encountered an issue that I felt like this strikes at the rationality or the truthfulness of what I believe, I would get worried. You know, and then I would, and it would, this would motivate me to really study and look into it. And then I would go, oh, I see it. And, it, and the clarity would come and the truthfulness would shine through and all that. And then I would calm down. And I, this happened enough times where I started to realize that it was true. <laughs> and so, um, so we can trust the Lord. But I, I get, totally get what you're coming from. So the paradox between God's omniscience and man's free will. Let's discuss it. First off, God's omniscience. This talks about how God knows everything. Uh, man's free will is the ability of man to make a free decision to choose anything. I mean, whether or not I'm going to, you know, pick up this cup of water right here or put it back down or take a drink. This is my free will choice, right? Well, the Bible seems to teach both of these truths, that God's omniscient and man has free will. And some say there's a paradox here. Let me explain for those who don't understand why they would be thinking this is a conflict or a contradiction. Uh, first, it goes like this. Hey, Mike. And I go, yes. And then, and, and you say, hey, God knows what I'll do. Uh, doesn't that mean that I couldn't do anything different? And and if I can't do anything different, doesn't that mean that I don't really have free will? And I say, oh, oh, and Christianity falls apart. No, not don't worry, it doesn't fall apart. Uh, so here's how this works. This conflates or confuses two different concepts, certainty versus necessity. Um, it's certain. God knows what you will do. He knows what you will choose to do. He knows it for sure. But it's not necessary. You could have chose something else. Or you could, in the future, choose a different thing. And if you were going to choose that, God would know that thing. Whatever decision you will make, God knows it ahead of time. And he can even influence these things if he so chooses. I mean, he can make 
you know, the roof fall on your head before you make that choice. So you didn't get the choice. But, but there are real choices, though, given that you are uh, provided those choices by God. So God's simple foreknowledge or omniscience, his awareness of what you will do, does not force you to do it. I mean, if it did, the worst case scenario here, Christian, would be that um, we don't have free will. And I would accept that if that was the case. It's, I don't think it's true, but it wouldn't undermine, uh, you know, it wouldn't undermine anything, truly. Um, so the problem, though, is it's just not reasonable. Um, and let me give you a hypothetical that might help you understand this, because this is a, a, a bit of a confusing philosophical concept uh, about the certainty of what you will do versus the necessity of what you will do. Um, so let's look at it this way. Um, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go into the, the kitchen, you know, and and I smell cookies, and I, I head in there, and my wife's pulling fresh cookies out of the oven, and she knows I haven't eaten for a few hours, you know, and so she sees me, and I have a weakness for chocolate chip cookies, especially fresh ones with the with the crust on the ends and the soft middle, right? And so mm, yes, and so she knows with certainty what I will say when she says, "Would you like a cookie?" Like she knows it 100%, she knows me, I'm definitely gonna say yes. Does that mean I couldn't say no? No, I mean, she just knows. She knows me, but I still make a decision, I still make a choice. Um, Here's another way to put this. Imagine that you're living in the atheist universe, right? Where we all, somehow, we just exist, creation is is existing and sustained and design and all this stuff that just happens to be here. And I'm about to decide whether or not I'm gonna drink this water and nobody outside of me knows whether I will or not, right? Not even God, because in this hypothetical, there is no God. So I, I go, no, I'm not going to drink. Do I have that free will? Am I making a real free will choice? Um, actually, in the atheist universe, I'd say you're not because you're just chemicals. And so there's just all chemical reactions. But that's a different issue. But let's say, so there's no omniscience. Does, without omniscience, without God knowing what I'll do, does that now mean that I, I, get, I am making a free will choice about my water? And if your answer is yes... Let's take that same universe now and let's just add God. We're just going to add God now. Now God's there. God does know what you'll do. Did I, did, did anything about me change? No. Did anything about the water change? No. Did anything about my situation or scenario change? No. I have the identical scenario, but now someone will say, just because God knows, I, don't, I suddenly don't have a choice. And that's to conflate certainty of God's knowledge versus the necessity of me doing the thing that he knows. Um, so I, I hope this helps. It is absolutely a uh, philosophical issue. You're welcome to research it more on your own. There are genuine guys much smarter than me, philosophers out there who've wrestled with these issues and offered really good uh, explanations of them. So uh, God knows what I'll do, but it doesn't mean he's causing me to do it. And scripture definitely supports that, uh, which I assume you understand because you, you phrased your question assuming that that, that was the case. All right, let's go to our next question. This is from Miriam. And Miriam asks, uh, she says, I have a lot of questions regarding when one dies. So what happens when we die, ultimately, is going to be this question. And she has a specific scripture she wants us to deal with. I grew up as a JW, so I'm trying to seek the truth now. I'm still looking for a church that teaches the Bible verse by verse. Pray for me. And just on a side note, I would recommend that you, you check out uh, Calvary, if there's a Calvary Chapel in your area. Uh, that's one church I'd look, I'd look into going to, um, at least checking out. Um, then uh, please explain, she says, 1 Samuel 28, 3 through 19 and 2 Corinthians 5, 8. So we're going to look at both these passages on the topic of what happens when we die. And why would people want their loved ones to be resurrected if it's better to be with the Lord? Um, the videos you have have been such a blessing to my family's life. She goes on to say uh, thank you. And that radically and wonderfully blesses my heart um, 
Miriam, that's why I'm doing this. And for me to think that just sharing truth online is impacting and actually affecting and changing the lives of others for the glory of God and for the for the gospel of Christ is uh, I is a blessing beyond words. So thank you for sharing that with me. Um, okay, here's the issue. Um, let me summarize my conclusion, and then I'm going to walk you through explaining how I get there with Scripture. My conclusion is this, that the moment I die, I am present with the Lord. Um, and then at a later date, I get a future body at the resurrection. I get a future body that's a glorified body. So I'm not in a physical body, but I'm present with the Lord in his presence. And then later, sometime in the future, um, and we read about this in Revelation, that's when you get a body. So that's my belief on death. You don't, it's not... You, you blink out of existence and you're recreated. It's not soul sleep. It's present with the Lord and then uh, in the future, new body. Now, let's let's talk about how this relates to a couple things. One is the passage that you brought up. Um, and the passage you brought up is, the first one is First Samuel uh, chapter 28. And we'll look at verses 3 through 15. I don't think we have to read the whole, the whole passage, but we're going to read a lot of it. Now, Samuel had died. Okay, so just, just for recap, Samuel is... A, a man of God, and he is going out and he's preaching the truth. And we're back in Israel. We're going, you know, teleport yourself back three thousand years. So we're in the life of of, of David and Saul. Um, and Saul's the king before David. He's a lousy king. Ends up kind of really turning from God in many ways. And Samuel is a prophet, and Samuel dies. Now Saul, he's been somewhat rejected by God at this point, and he's distressed. And Samuel's not there for him to go. Hey, Samuel, man of God, tell me what to do. So. This is what happens because Samuel's dead. Uh, all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Okay, we're just setting the scene there. All, this, all the spiritists are kicked out of the land, or at least most of them. The Philistines assembled and came together and encamped at Shunem. So they're over there at Shunem and the Philistines are bad guys. They're a threat to Saul and they're more powerful than Saul. And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets uh, or by prophets. Excuse me. So God's not speaking to him. Saul's getting no wisdom from God, no answer from God on this issue. Then Saul said to his servants, here's his desperate act, rebellion against God. Here's his desperate act. Seek out for me a woman who is a medium. This is forbidden in Israel. God forbid this sort of thing. And he goes, find me a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, behold, there is a medium at Endor. Endor, you, you know Endor. It, it, you've seen the Star Wars movies, right? Endor, there's all these Ewoks there and everything. Totally the same place. Uh, verse 8, so Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night and he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up whomever I shall name to you. So literally the king of Israel <laughs> rebelling against God, hiding his identity, sneaking out to find this, this, this witch, this uh, medium. And uh, so he says, you're going to find this spirit for me. So the woman, here we are, verse nine, the woman said to him, surely you know that what Saul has done, she doesn't realize it's Saul yet, how he has cut off the mediums and necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? Now this, now you see how this relates to death and what happens when we die. He said, bring up Samuel for me. 
when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out, here we are, with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Okay, now pause for a second. I just, we got to observe this. Note that the woman is surprised that Samuel actually shows up. Probably because she's usually scamming people, right? So she actually goes through this process, tries to contact. Samuel shows up and she freaks out. She's shocked, right? Whoa, whoa, what's going on here? Um, so she says, why have you deceived me? You're Saul. She, she you know, realizes what's really going on here. And the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. That phrase, I see a God. Um, uh, this, I, I have to offer commentary on this passage because I'm bringing it up here. So this phrase, God, is Elohim, that word Elohim. Elohim is a very flexible word used of not only of God, but of it's not it's not an equivalent of the English word God, but you have to translate it as something. So I see a God coming up out of the earth. So there's one issue here is that Elohim is a flexible word. It often just means powerful spiritual things. But also, um, she, she calls Samuel a God, but the actual text itself just says it's Samuel. Remember, this is a woman who's caught up in weird, dark spiritual things, evil things. I'm not exactly trusting her interpretation of events. But the commentary from the text is that it's Samuel that she sees. So we, we, uh, we take this as he really did rise. He really did spiritually show up. And um, let's pick up here in verse uh, 14. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he's wrapped in a robe. And so it's a, it's a spiritual thing. She sees him and he's wrapped in a robe, uh, at least, you know, his appearance. Um, and Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed his, with his face to the ground and paid homage. And then the story goes on. We don't need to cover the whole thing, but Samuel basically rips into Saul. Like, you're going to die. Your sons are going to die. You're toast. You're rebelling against God. So, you know, I think Saul ended up regretting the whole experience. <laughs> he never should have done it in the first place. Um, you're going to lose. You're going to die. What do I learn from this passage? Well, what I learned from this passage is that Samuel, uh, he was he was not like annihilated, like he stopped existing. Um, and he was not attached to his body. He's able to show up in some kind of spiritual form. He's able to be seen. He's able to talk. And he's conscious. Um, and it's still him. It's really Samuel. And so there's a disembodied state that definitely happens. That that's what we can learn from this thing. We're not learning here that mediums are good or that they, act, or that they even normally work. In fact, if anything, this implies that it normally doesn't work. That's why the woman was so shocked. And um, um, the the second question that you had related to first Corinthians or second Corinthians chapter five. So we're going to look at that passage right now. Second Corinthians five. And I'm going to bring together a couple different ideas so that we can get a fuller understanding of, of this because Samuel, it says was brought up, which implies that he was, was he down below? Or is that just a, a, a euphemism or a metaphor because the bodies are placed in the grave and he's brought up? Um, or was it that he was literally somewhere below, or at least symbolically below, like he wasn't in heaven with God. And I think, personally, I think that's the case. Um, but let's let's look at 2 Corinthians here, chapter 5, and verse uh, starting in verse 6. He says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. This is Paul speaking here, now New Testament teaching about the issue. When we're at home in the body... I'm in a physical body. I'm away from God. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. My preference is if I was not in this body and I was where? 
at home with the Lord. So Paul's speaking it about it as though when he's not in this body, he's at home with God. These are the two options. It's like I'm in the body, not with God, or I'm or I die, and I am with the Lord, not in an intermediate state, not dis, of of just disappearing or annihilation or or having to be re, recreated later or something like that, but actually with God, present with God, but not in a body. So that's consistent with Samuel, except for one factor. Samuel, it seems, was somewhere below. Paul is describing himself as being with God, which you would think of as above, at least metaphorically. Um, so let, let's read a little bit more of this. Um, we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And so th- this is this is just the conclusion we get. In fact, the, the quote you often hear people give nowadays is, is this. They say, hey, um, better to be um, absent from the body and present with the Lord. Or they just say, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, some people, they use this quote a lot. Then they go to the actual text and they go, that's not exactly what it says. You're right. It's not what it says. What, what that is, is that's a doctrinal statement derived from the text. Because of that text, I can say, ah, I conclude that when I'm absent from the body, I'm present with the Lord. Because Paul says that those were his options and he knew which one he liked better. <laughs> so, so yeah, but he would continue on and uh, serve. So the last piece of the puzzle I'll put together for you is this. Um, there is... Uh, well, two pieces, really. Um, There is a future resurrection where we will get our physical bodies. When we get the physical bodies, we won't not be with God. We will be with God, physical bodies, at the return of Christ, along with all of the other saints. So you'll have present with the Lord with a glorified physical body. Read 1 Corinthians 15, if you'd like to get more info on that, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we will also have the reunion of all the saints. So we look forward to the resurrection because it means with the Lord, with each other, and with glorified bodies that are un- incorruptible and undying. And uh, so that's one piece of the puzzle. The other piece is this. How do I explain how Samuel came up and how um, Paul seems to talk about how we're actually not going to be coming up? If we, When we come, we'll come down. We'll come back from the heavens, Jesus, with, with his saints, you know. So how does this work? Uh, well, read Jesus in his uh, story about Lazarus and the rich man. And he talks about a location where I think before Christ, they would go and the bodies would be kept temporarily. And not the bodies, excuse me, the souls of the of the deceased are kept there. And there's different compartments. There's the saved basically and the unsaved. And Lazarus and the rich man are in these different compartments. And you can read about those. After the death and resurrection of Christ, all the language says that not they're not going to be gathered with their fathers when they die, like waiting on the Lord. No, no, the redemption's been accomplished now. Those people are now just with God. And when we die, we go to be with God. Okay, that, that was just a, a super quick, you know, rundown. Uh, this obviously deserves a whole video really carefully laying out what happens when we die. But there's my quick Q&A answer for you. And I hope that you find it to be helpful. Uh, the next question I have is from Gia. And it's... Um, it's when should you leave a church? And okay, that's tough stuff. Uh, I've been there. Um, and I have one time in my life walked away from a church, like not moving ministries, that kind of thing, but left, left. And, um, that was tough. So let me say a few things and I hope you hear me and I hope you hear me saying this with a careful and thoughtful mind. Um, first thing is this life is vastly complicated. And if I even tried to tell you like exactly when you should leave a church, 
um, it wouldn't be you wouldn't be able to apply it into every situation. So what I'm going to do is try to offer some thoughts that might help you as you're wrestling with this question for yourself or anybody else who's listening. Um, take what I say now with wisdom, because even good advice can be easily misapplied, or it might not work in your scenario. Because there's this one issue I didn't think to factor in when I was giving my advice. So here's my advice. These are nine tips I have um, on things you should be thinking about for anybody who's considering leaving a church. And so the first one is this. Are there serious doctrinal issues in the church? Serious, like I mean weighty, very serious doctrinal issues. Either the people are being uh, being led away to a false gospel or the, the, the core of, of Christianity is being compromised somehow. Because if there's serious doctrinal issues like that in the church, I'm probably out of there. This is actually one of the easiest ways to make the decision. Serious, serious doctrinal problems. Um, but that's not all there is to think about. Consider these other issues as well. Number two is, is there serious harm to the flock happening? Serious harm to the flock. So doctrinal issues would be relating to things. Number one is not harm to the flock. Number one is doctrinal issues. That's like um, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works. Um, that's like people saying, you know, that's the doctrine. That's that's the gospel. Don't compromise that. People saying that there's, oh, there's many ways, you know, and, uh, and, and bringing in rank heresy that would be violating number one number two is different number two is about sin is this church somehow bringing in grave sin and wickedness and it's affecting and harming the people of the church so is there serious harm to the flock of god happening in this fellowship and obviously there's always going to be some amount of harm in all honesty because we're people living with people but if it's serious and if it hits a certain level you might you might need to leave number three a question to ask is this can you affect change are you in a position in place where you can actually change the things that are going on in this church? Because that might be a really good reason to stay because you can actually change what's happening. If you, if you see this stuff going on, you have no ability to change it. You're just along for the ride. Then it's a, a greater reason in my mind to consider leaving. But if you can change things, maybe it's worth sticking around. May God give you wisdom. Uh, number four, uh, how long have you been at this church? If you've been there for two weeks, it's a lot easier to leave, and my threshold for leaving is a lot lower. If you've been there for 20 years, I think it's a lot harder to take off, and I'd be willing to tolerate more, to be honest, uh, depending on how long your investment is, and for lots of reasons, uh, which you understand if you've been there for 20 years, you understand why that is. Uh, number, um, number five is, what are the consequences of you staying? Consider the consequences of staying, because sometimes we get caught up in just the nervousness of, of leaving or staying. What will it cost you if you don't leave? For instance, um, do you have children? Do you have kids or grandkids or people that look to you and because of your, um, your influence, they will also be part of this fellowship? And if your staying causes others to, to stay plugged in because they, they look to you, they respect you, they look up to you maybe, and your presence gives credence to all that's happening in this fellowship, then you might have to consider that you can't stick around because just your presence is an endorsement of something that you can't endorse. That's a possibility. Um, and, you know, if you're going to stay there, but you you, you can't serve, I, I won't serve, I won't endorse what the church is doing, I'll just show up on Sundays. Like, I'm, I'm starting to wonder why why stay. This is this is a consequence of staying is you're, you're really only halfway there, and that may not be, uh, that may not be a good idea. Number six is this, really important. Check yourself. Make sure that your heart is not bitter. Make sure that you have no malice, resent, Fullness. Uh, you don't have a skewed attitude towards people where you, they do one thing wrong and you just see it as the biggest thing in the world. Basically, bitterness and malice are like an icky taste in your mouth. So, you know, when you go to eat food, it always tastes wrong. 
well, bitterness and malice towards people who are ministering to me or ministering with me or that I'm ministering to, no matter what they do or say, I take it all with a, with a degree of bitterness. It always tastes wrong to me because I have anger and malice and bitterness in my heart. So Ephesians tells us to put away all anger, wrath, malice, put it all away. Put it all away. Get rid of that. You can't have that. You will not be able to make this decision while you're feeling these feelings. I'm, I'm telling you, you have to evaluate you before you evaluate the church. You got to get the, the plank out of your eye before you're going to see clearly to deal with whatever else is going on. So um, number seven is this. Seven question to ask is, are you setting yourself up for isolation? Um, if you, let's say here's your list of standards. My church isn't meeting these standards, so I decide to leave. Okay, if you take that same list and you judge all other churches by the same standards, will you find yourself without a church? Are you making it so that you can't go to any church because no church is good enough because your standards are, are just wrong? And if that's the case, then you'll know it because as you, as you leave this church, no other church is acceptable to you. It's, your, your standards are just too high. So don't set yourself up for isolation. Don't become a, an isolated Christian. Proverbs 18.1 is for you. Uh, he who isolates himself uh, is, is not wise. <laughs> is not wise. He rages against all wise judgment. Um, and he seeks his own desire, as the scripture says. So be careful. Really, please be careful here. Because there are I, I've known and met many Christians where no church is good enough for them. Breaks my heart. Because guess what? They're part of my body. But they're dis disassociated. They're disconnected. They've been cut off from the body. And that's sad. Number eight, um, has God revealed anything to you? I mean, has the Lord truly, genuinely spoken to you? Not, not just you feeling strongly about something, but I mean, has God revealed something to you? Obviously, that, that really matters. And then um, number nine, last thing I'll say if you're considering leaving a church is this. If you do leave a church, a local fellowship, do it in love, do it with tact, do it trying to cause as little harm as possible, do it um, as graciously as you can. Now, if they're, if they're preaching a false gospel, I would probably lead, leave loudly and take as many people as I could with me. But if there are there's some issues that are further down the list that might still cause me to leave, but would cause me to leave as quiet as I possibly can. And you, you may be talked bad about behind your back. People might think weird things about you and you just, you just let it go and you just, you just don't go there. So I would say do it in love. How, if you have to leave, do it in love. And I pray that, I pray that something I've shared here is a help, help for you. Okay. So my next question is from RC who has, has told me her name and I just don't remember it. And, um, but, but I do remember you. Uh, and you said, Mike, a great idea. This was to the question of, hey, ask me a question and I'll try to answer it. Uh, my Bible group leader is an ex-lifelong JW. She's in her 80s and has been a Christian for a short time considering her lifelong commitment to the JWs. I feel she's carrying over some aspects from her past into her new walk with Christ. Is this normal? Yes, it's absolutely normal. Um, it's incredibly normal to carry over baggage and luggage doctrinal luggage, confusion, from a false teaching system into the new, into the new accurate beliefs that you have. Um, I get questions all the time from former Jehovah's Witnesses who are like, I'm not a Jehovah's Witness, but could you explain who the 144,000 are? And, and, and it's like maybe years out of the watchtower and they're still going, but, but then who are the 144,000? If it's not who I've been taught, I, I have a hard time seeing who it really is. Now, the interesting thing is if you just read the chapter, right? In, in, in Revelation, you, you just read it. It's clearly, this is 12,000 from each tribe. These are Jewish people. <laughs> That's who they are in the future. And, um, and yet, it's very difficult for some people to even understand that that's who they are. Now, in addition to this, 
the Trinity is an issue that often drags over from Jehovah's Witness teaching. They'll, they'll leave the watchtower, but they still don't believe in the Trinity. And the reason for this, I think, is because what I've seen consistently is the Watchtower will, will misrepresent what the Trinity actually is. It will actually twist the doctrine of the Trinity. Most often, what will happen is when, when the Watchtowers or the governing body or the, or the material they produce, when they're trying to refute the Trinity, they refute modalism, which is a heresy. Like, we don't believe modalism, but they often refute modalism. Or they'll refute Unitarianism, and they, they don't actually deal with the Trinity. So that even though someone's left the Watchtower, they don't realize that when they say, I don't believe the Trinity, the thing they're pointing at isn't even the Trinity. And so it can often take a lot of time. A lot of time. Um, so I would recommend, uh, for what it's worth, that you try to develop a relationship with this person, with this, this, this leader, and where you can talk to her about those issues. Like, try to build that kind of rapport that maybe those issues, you can discuss them openly and, and casually. Um, but again, I would say don't try to fix everything because um, I don't think it's possible. And so, um, and, and really, thank God he doesn't, he doesn't come down on us for every single thing all the time, constantly 24-7 that we do wrong or think wrong because um, that would be all he would do. But, uh, but yeah, so I, I would say try to build that relationship and maybe you can help, help her out with those things. Um, and you obviously have a, a bit of a tightrope to walk because you're concerned about the fact that she's leading and maybe has a couple confused points. So may, may God guide you give you wisdom in those things. If you're a former uh, member of the Watchtower or or if you're a former um, Mormon or other group out there who is an offshoot of Christianity with twisted teachings, be patient. Be patient. You will get there. It's just one little piece at a time. And as those domino dominoes start to fall, it gets easier and easier and easier and quicker and quicker to see the clear, true doctrine of Scripture. It just takes time and patience. Uh, the next question is from Dylan, and Dylan asks, um, I find a lot of people saying that I, a 20-year-old, am too young to have a real opinion theologically. This is when my views don't match their views, <laughs> interestingly enough, right? Or they have a doctorate, so they would know, so I'm just supposed to take their word for it, right? Well, Dylan says, how can I get the focus off of that, the argument of authority, and back in the scriptures as the authority and justification for my belief? First, I just want to say this, Dylan, I can just tell by the way you word your question, you're obviously an intelligent, uh, well thought out guy. And I think that might be the problem. <laughs> um, it's it, assuming that you're, you're sharing it to me the same way it is in real life. Um, it's silly for someone to think you're 20 years old and you're not old enough to have an opinion about theological issues. That is ridiculous. Um, I had plenty of opinions at 20. Yes, I'm 39 now and my opinions are much more developed and much more thoughtful and more thorough and all that. But that doesn't mean I was wrong when I was 20. I haven't, I don't have a whole new theology. It's largely the same. It's just a whole lot more full, you know, and grounded and, and, and all that. But, but here's the issue that I see. Um, I'm going to recommend really three things. Uh, one is uh, choose your battles. Something I say a lot, choose your battles. Um, when you're disagreeing with someone, especially someone older than you, decide when it's worth disagreeing um, so that you can save up your, your sort of earning currency when you let them talk and you can save up that currency so you can spend it on issues that really matter and that's when you talk. So let them talk more than you and choose your battles. That'd be the first recommendation. Uh, number two is use questions framed with genuine respect. So for instance, um, you might ask them when, when you come across something they say that you, you, you're like, I, I do not think that's right. So instead of saying, I think you're wrong, or telling them, no, let me tell you how it is, 
here's just a, a good tactic to take. You just say things like this. Uh, excuse me, uh, what scriptures helped convince you of that position? See, this is fantastic because I'm letting them be the authority, which is what they're wanting to be in that scenario. I'm letting them be it. And fine, they're older. I can respect them and give them that place. I think that's an honorable thing to do. But I'm, but I'm also letting scripture be king by asking them to help me with their authority by showing it to me in the scriptures. So I think that's a smart thing to do. So instead of saying things like, that's not what that verse is talking about, you could say, how do you get that idea out of that verse? Do you see how just framing it in a respectful question, um, it, it comes off different and it, it inspires a different moment, you know, than if I just disagree. Now, maybe you're already doing this and you, you, you're like, I'm already trying these tactics, Mike, and they're not working. Like they get mad at me and irritated when I just ask questions, genuine, respectful questions. Then I would say this to you, Dylan. The fact is they may simply not be very deep. Um, this is entirely possible. Teachers often want to represent as though they know everything about a subject. And especially the ones that don't know everything about a subject are the, are more inclined to do this. You'll find the more educated a guy is on an issue, the less he tries to tell you how educated he is on that issue. <laughs> and so they may just not be very deep and you might be asking them questions they don't know how to answer. And if that's the case, um, I encourage you to be gracious to them, but I encourage you to just realize they're not my source for going deep because they've never gone there and that's okay. I love going deep in theology. And I'll tell you, Dylan, I've run into plenty of guys who I asked questions and I realized they got irritated because they didn't know the answer and they felt like they had to know the answer. And so I, I just stopped asking those questions of those guys, but I did not stop asking the questions. I just gathered them. I continue to go deep, as deep as I can. And I found that this has really changed my teaching online. So please keep going deep. Don't stop going deep. Um, that's the whole third point. Realize they may not be your source. So focus on influencing people you can. Focus on going deeper. Help bring others into that deeper place without being rebellious, you know. Um, be aware of arrogance that may enter your heart. You may you may be way deeper than them in, in, in knowledge of theology, but that doesn't mean that you're more spiritual. <laughs> and so uh, this may well be actually training in your life. If you're one who does think deeper about theology than those around you, then the two things I would tell you is one, Make sure your character is as deep as your theology and your maturity is that deep as well. But two, go deep because you can then elevate the theology of everyone you influence when one day you're the older guy and the younger guy's asking you those questions. All right, let's look at the next one, which is from uh, Kitty. Kitty says, how do I help a friend or family member out of the false prosperity gospel? Um, this is a tough a tough issue, and I'll, I'll, I'll disclaimer here. I, I, I'm going to give you my best advice, uh, but I, I don't have like any full foolproof plans for being able to get someone out of something. But I, but I do have biblical reasons and ways of outreaching to them, and so I'm going to try to share with you those things because um, you can't guarantee results, but you can you can do a method that's biblical. So my first thought is this: is use scripture, and the thing I want to tell you, and I mean quite literally, use scripture, like actually in the conversations with that person, don't just focus on argument, but focus on scripture. Second um, Timothy 3.16 says this, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If, if the scripture is useful for correcting, then that's the key, isn't it? So if you want to correct the false prosperity gospel teaching that that person's received, 
you're going to have to use the Bible to do it. You want to share with them specifically, here's a verse that refutes that, uh, not in a mean way, but, but show them right in the text of the word of God. Come with those scriptures prepared, uh, have Bible studies together, uh, go to Bible studies together, send them stuff to listen to and you can talk about without you know bombarding them too much, but that, that's all good stuff to do. Another verse I want to take you to is about how we do this, and it's also in 2 Timothy. So te- 2 Timothy 2.24, and it says, uh, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, which means as you do this, um, don't you, you want to disagree, but for the sake of, of correction and instruction, not for the sake of a fight or an argument. Um, so don't be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone. So are you doing it in a way that's kind? Are you, are you gentle? Um, able to teach. So there's an education aspect. You may have to explain things to this person that they don't understand just by looking at the text. You can't maybe just go, look, see, you're wrong. Instead, you're like, hey, let's look at the text together. Do you see how this means this? Or that? Do you see what that's talking about? You have like the attitude of a teacher. A good teacher will not only see the truth of an issue, but they see the mind of the student and they see how to get that person's brain from where they are now to the truth of the issue. So they kind of build a roadmap from point A to point B. That's what teaching often is. Um, so patiently enduring. So you're going to have to have patience. You're going to have to walk with them patiently. It won't happen right away. It may take lots and lots of conversations and it might be more like chipping away at a boulder than it is about blowing out a dam. Um, and this is correcting his opponents with gentleness. And when I use gentleness, it's when I'm moving something from one, maybe one place to another and I'm afraid of breaking it. Just keep that in mind. I don't want to harm this person as I walk them through these difficult issues. Um, and then ultimately it's, it's going to be in the Lord's hands that God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth. So that's, that's my counsel. Be gentle, teach patiently, have humility, pride will ruin this whole thing and realize you're trying to correct them in the sense you're trying to make them right, not just prove that they're wrong. Ha ha, that's an important key. I want to make you right not just prove that you're wrong. I actually have a few videos that I'm going to put in the video description for you, Kitty. Um, So what I'll put these under is prosperity uh, gospel or prosperity preaching. I'll put that title and I'll put these two video links. These are two of my teachings on there. But maybe I'm not the best teacher for them. I don't know. That's up to you to decide. Maybe you want to find someone who, who teaches with the same style as their prosperity preachers but is super grounded theologically. They might be more open to that person. I don't know. Just an idea. Um, So Kitty actually had two questions, which I didn't realize. I I don't think I would have let you sneak in with two, but I had already prepared an answer. So Um, Kitty's second question is, can you please do a video explaining if we're under the law or under grace? And then should we still give tithes to the church? So I guess it's like three questions. Sneaky. Um, Under the law or under grace, I will also put a, a link in the video description to a two-part series I have that is called How to Understand the Old Testament Law. The first part is understanding it from a Jewish perspective. The second part is understanding it from a Christian perspective. You're probably most interested in the second part, so um, I'd recommend part two for sure. Um, That will totally answer that question uh, of being under the law versus under grace. But now let me give you an answer to your second question, which is, should we still give tithes to the church? Should we give tithes to the church? This is a crash course on tithing. I will give a short answer to this question right now to move on to our next issue today. Um, But here it is. One day I'll do a whole long video establishing all this slowly. Is there tithing commanded for Christians today? Uh, No, I believe absolutely not. There is no tithing command for Christians today. I'll give you two reasons to start with. One is we're not under the law. 
which is what those videos are about that I recommended you watch. Number two, the law did not command merely 10%. And when it did command 10%, it wasn't 10% to your local church leaders because that didn't exist, right? It was going to the government and to the Levitical priesthood to pay for all these different things. This was not just 10%, but there were other offerings that they would give throughout the year that were also mandatory. So I don't understand how a church would say, you have to give 10% based on Old Testament, but then they ignore all the other giving. And then they don't do all the stuff for the people that the, that the priests and stuff were doing back then. It, it just, it's odd. But that's not the end of the story. That's just the beginning of the story. Um, are we to give in the church? Yes. Yes, you should give in the church. I'm just saying that there isn't a rule about it being 10%. That's all I'm saying. So specifically, we're to give, the Bible specifically singles out these reasons. We're to give to help poor believers. This may be giving to a ministry or just helping poor believers that you know. We're to help poor believers. We're to pay ministers. Specifically, the Bible says we're to pay those, um, take care of the, the physical needs of those who are laboring uh, um, in spiritual things to bless others. And if they're blessing you, then then why don't you go help them? That's entirely appropriate and right to financially help those who spiritually bless you. Don't let people abuse you with this, but that is a biblical principle. Um, also, we're not to be mooches. Uh, you know what a mooch is? A mooch is a person who, get, who takes, takes, takes and never, never gives. They're like the leech in Proverbs. They always want, I want, I want, I want. Um, you go to church, you attend a service, whether it's in a home church or if it's in a big building somewhere, and your church is your people. Your people gather together. They are the church. They gather together. And together, you're using up food and you're using up supplies and you're wearing out the, the seats and you're using up the AC and you're using up the lights. And this stuff costs money in order to maintain. And year after year, you give nothing to that fellowship. So everybody else, they pay for you. So you're a mooch. Don't be a mooch. That would be my recommendation. Um, you can use 10% as a rule if you like. There's nothing wrong with it. You can use 10%, 5%, 20%, whatever you want. Here is what the scripture says about how much you should give. First, 1 Corinthians 16.2, it says that we should give as we prosper. I should be giving as I prosper, meaning I'm giving according to how much God has blessed me. This is different than what prosperity preachers teach. They want you to give according to how much you want to be blessed. That's selfish giving. That's giving to get. 1 Corinthians 16.2 implies that we should be giving based on how much we have received. So I look at what I've got and I give accordingly to the abundance that God supplied for me. Meaning it's proportional to how much I have. So I'm not saying percentage. I'm proportional to how, how much you've got though. Um, also, 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8, it says that he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So if I... If I give a little, I'll, I'll receive a little back if I so bound. Oh, but is this about giving and getting money? No, no, this is about spiritual rewards for financially giving. Um, so just so you know, one of your motives for giving is that you're, so, you're storing up treasures in heaven, you're blessing God. Uh, I think that you, you get this idea pretty simply. And it's exciting to think that I can take something like filthy money and I can use it for God's kingdom, for his glory and his purposes. That's a blessing. Um, then in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 9, uh, it says, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Four important points. In fact, I've got to bring this scripture up because you need uh, to look at it. This is 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. And it says, Give as he has decided in his heart, that's not 10%, is it? Like, how can I 
claim that people have to give a particular percentage when the Bible says you can give as you decide in your heart. So this is actually counter to the idea that there's a set percentage that you have to give. It's as you decide in your heart. So it's up to you how much you give. End of story. That's the deal. Second thing is not grudgingly or not reluctantly. New King James is grudgingly. If you give grudgingly, that means you you don't really want to give. You're giving, but like you're, you're holding on to the money kind of tightly. Like you have to really yank it out of your hands. So that's the idea. Is give not grudgingly. If you... If, you're, if your heart is still in your money instead of your heart in the ministry, then something's wrong. you got to fix that. That's on you. But the next one is not under compulsion. To not give under compulsion, which means nobody can force you to give. Pass the bucket around again. Followed up by a guilt trip and another bucket pass. All right, That's a serious issue in my mind because it violates this clearly. Not of necessity. Nobody has to give in church. Nobody has to give in the fellowship, I should say, in the gathering of saints. Nobody's required to. We are encouraged to. We're even told to. But nobody in the in the authority of the church, uh, the elders, the leaders of the fellowship, none of them are supposed to go and tell you, you need to give. It's a necessity. Wrong. Um, and then finally, God loves a cheerful giver. These rules are set up so that God would have you with a heart of hilarity or joy giving because you're enjoying the idea that you get to invest in God's kingdom and you get to bless others who've blessed you and you get to help with the poor and you get to further the, the sake for the sake of Christ and the sake of the gospel. Generous giving based on how much you have and what you're able to give and it's up to you how much that ends up being. That's the crash course on giving. Probably more information than you, th- than you thought you'd get in a crash course, but my version of a crash course. A full teaching one day, I'll put a teaching online giving more details. So the next question is from Christian. I believe X-I-A-N is supposed to be pronounced Christian. Um, Hi, Mike. I'm wondering if you could address what to do or how to respond when God feels distant or silent. Um, first off, I'll say this. Christian, I have definitely felt this, um, as, as so many have, you know, deep and deep, deep in my being have felt this. And I don't feel that what I'm about to share with you is a full answer. And I encourage you to continue seeking answers. Ask other people, get counsel from other leaders and other godly people you know to help you through this sort of thing if you're feeling it now or if maybe in the future. Um, but I will give some thoughts that have helped me. First off is this. Um, you asked the, pers- the perfect question. The question is, what do I do or how do I respond? The question isn't always, why is this happening? What does this mean? It's, what do I do? Okay, look, this is how it is. What do I do? I'm not sensing God's presence. I'm not feeling that God is near. I feel like I'm praying and like like I have these doubts in my heart or mind or something like that. Um, what do I do? And, and the answer is, you keep on keeping on. That's the short answer. But, but, but let, me, let me give you some more details. Uh, first, I encourage you to evaluate. Just ask the question. Is there sin in my life that I need to deal with? Now, don't take this wrong. This is not a guilt trip. I'm not saying you feel this because there's sin in your life, but you've got to at least ask the question. There may be, this may not be related to sin, right? With Job, was it sin? No, it was not, right? Um, but with, with many of us, it may be sin. And if it is, it's not going to be this vague thing you can't figure out, right? It's not a puzzle. It's obvious. The second you go, Lord, is there sin in my life that I should? You will not finish that prayer before it's, immediately known to you what the issues are of sin because they're obvious to you. You know what's going on. There's sin in your life. It should be it should be apparent. That would be my pastoral counsel to you. Um, if there is, deal with the sin because that needs to be overcome. 
um, so that you can help yourself out. Uh, number two is this, trust God by a decision you make. You make a decision to trust God because sometimes I think God is moving us to a greater place of faith. You see, what we do is we use feelings as a means of confirmation sometimes where I, I, I go to worship the Lord and I, I just am aware of his goodness and I'm aware of his nearness and I'm aware of his love and I'm overwhelmed by his glory and oh, God is, surely God is so near me right now and I'm so blessed. And then I go, now I know that God is really with me and really real and really all these things. And I use that as confirmation for my faith. So the next time I go to worship, I go, I'm not, I'm not getting that same feeling. Maybe, maybe I need it again to get really confirmation again. And we're like Gideon, except instead of putting out a fleece once or twice, we're putting out a fleece a thousand times in a row. I always need God to confirm emotionally to me over and over and over again. And this is a, a, uh, a sign of a really immature believer. Um, just imagine being married to someone who never believes you really love them and they always need you to confirm it and get them to feel it every day or you don't think that they don't think you really love them. I mean, it, it would, it's a terrible situation in all reality for everybody, for both sides of that marriage and that relationship. So my, my thought is this is, it's possible that God is taking you deeper into a place of faith where you go, Lord, I don't feel it, but I know it's true. I don't depend on my feelings to trust in you, God. I don't depend on my awareness of spiritual things to know that you are real. I trust you, God. And when you make that decision to trust God and press forward and keep going, and that's number three is keep going, um, then I think that you are coming to a real place of spiritual maturity. Um, the scripture says that we should wait on the Lord and keep his way. Keeping his way is keeping on going. While you're waiting, you're not just waiting. God made me feel better. I'll sit here till you do. That's not what waiting is. Waiting is Lord. I'll get up. I'll get in the word. I'll go and I'll work as unto the Lord with my life. I'll go and I will bless those that you've called me to bless. And I will serve those you've called me to serve. And I will seek you with my life. And I will keep my heart pure. That's what waiting on God is. And as you do that, God will renew your heart. He will restore your strength. And he will uh, raise you up on wings like eagles. <laughs> and so, And I've seen this happen in my life as well. So I give you counsel from you know, personal experience that I do believe this is the case. So I do encourage you to, to, maybe while you're waiting on the Lord, read the Psalms and look especially for the Psalms where he's despairing. And notice this, how at the end of those Psalms, look for it yourself, be the, be the detective in scripture, how at the end of those Psalms, the Psalm writer will just make an affirmation of faith. Yet, I will trust the Lord. He's like, everything's doom and gloom and doom and gloom. God, I'm waiting on you. When will you answer? And then he concludes, I will trust you, God. And that may be exactly what you need to do, is decide I'm going to trust in God no matter what, because I believe, even though all the world around me is falling apart, I have the anchor, I have the rock, I have the refuge, I have my fortress, and that is God. And I don't have to feel it to know that he is real, because if, you know, if it's between God and my feelings, his character and his perfections versus me and my flippant feelings, I'm going to trust him. So I do encourage you to do that. Great when you can come to a place as a Christian. It's great when you are not relying on your emotions to tell you spiritual things. The next question we have is from Corey. So um, there it is. Corey's question. He says, hey, Mike, I know you, uh, you've said you're not sure where you stand on the age of all existence and the earth. I was curious if you've ever seen any of Hugh Ross's apologetics. 
What is your take on how he finds the context, how he finds context in the Bible and translation of old text to match what science says? Not saying he's twisting the word, but I figured I would ask since you're such a detailed study bug. Thank you for your ministry. Um, you're very welcome. And Corey, uh, what what I think about Hugh Ross is first off, I'm definitely the jury's still out. In, in, for my not not that it's up to me to decide if his ministry is good, You're, but the jury's out before I can even form a full opinion on that ministry. Um, I'll, I'll make a couple observations, then I'll con- conclude with my final point, which is the first observation. I think that Hugh Ross raises really good points, really really good points. Um, uh, I've heard a lot of young Earth creationism as well in the past, and when I heard um, Hugh Ross and his stuff, I was really blessed by it because of a few things. He raises points that, in all honesty, the Young Earth Creation stuff I'd heard did not raise those issues and didn't even deal with those issues. And there was like gaps in my in my knowledge on the issues because of that. And I felt like hearing the, this, this other side was actually really helpful. Um, I also like this. He doesn't raise the issues saying, um, I trust science over the Bible or something like that. Rather... There is a genuine faith and trust in the word of God from this ministry. I consider Hugh Ross to be a brother in Christ, and I listen eagerly to the things that they have to share. I want to critically evaluate them and all that, but they're definitely a voice I'm willing to hear on the topics because I do believe that he's trying to um, honor God and have solid, real Christian faith, not compromise things to look better to a secular world. I don't think that's their goal at all. There are those who do that, and I do fear BioLogos does this. Um, I could be wrong. But the little I've seen from them makes me worried that there's they, the flexibility they find in the scripture is, is, is maybe more than I'm, allowed, I'm willing to tolerate. Um, but Hugh Ross, though they do try to exegete the scriptures, and they do, he, does, he makes really good points on Yom and the meaning of day in Genesis. And uh, his, his case for a local flood is actually really interesting because you know, being raised you know, within the young earth crowd, when I hear his case for a local flood, I'm assuming he's just throwing scripture out. And then I realize he's taking a contextual term, you know, the whole earth and looking at the usage of that term throughout the Bible and saying, here's why I think this represents the inhabited earth and all of humanity versus the planet earth. And, and it's actually, he makes a strong case for that in that particular situation. But I haven't had the time to evaluate all of his stuff. And so I don't have an overall opinion just yet, but he's gained my respect with a few of his text-based arguments that are exegetical. Um, sometimes I have to say, sometimes I think they they are stretching the text. And um, so that's why my, the jury's still out on those things. So th- there's just my, my quick opinion on Hugh Ross. Um, really respect him, really love him. Definitely want to learn more. But I, I, I like want to hear more stuff between, the two, between Hugh Ross and Answers in Genesis and... Uh, um, and like CRI or these different groups, I want to hear them have open forum discussions, tackle each other's toughest issues and do it for the rest of us to just listen in on where they take their expertise and they put it on display. Um, that's something that I enjoy. And um, so yeah, waiting for more info on that. Next question is from Sheriston James. Sheriston says, um, how can you tell what biblical promises are for us right now? And which ones were just for a season or conditional for the Jewish people back then? Um, or just for the Jewish people. Uh, so do all of God's promises apply forever? The answer is no. Um, and then does the Bible make all God's promises clear? So one of the things that I, I think, Sheriston, is that sometimes there's a problem with these uh, promise books. They can be great, don't get me wrong. But they kind of flatten everything out so that it's like, Everything God says is a promise, 
and all those promises are things that you can sort of count on and claim in a personal way. And I think that that's sort of a uh, like a kindergarten level theology instead of maybe getting a little bit deeper. So let me offer some thoughts to help you as you wrestle with this issue. Um, God's promises are always for his intended targets. So for instance, um, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. He says this to Judas, right? Now that's guaranteed. That's a promise. Like that's going to happen. But we don't, we don't think this is true for every gathering of the disciples of Jesus. Like in every group of 12 people, one of them will betray Christ because it's a promise of God and I claim it. Obviously we wouldn't say that. So we can't say that about everything God says. The promises are for their intended targets. If the intended target was Judas, it was for him and it's absolutely going to happen. If the intended target was all people, it's for everybody. It's always true. If it was just Israel, it's just for Israel. So here's the other side of the coin. So promises are for their intended targets. But this is where some people go, oh, well, I just kind of throw out the Old Testament. So much for God's promises. They're just for their intended targets. Well, no, it's better than that because we learn principles from these promises and we can apply those into our lives today. And let me give you an example of a promise that's for Israel but has principles that apply into our lives today. You know this, this scripture, Jeremiah 29. I'll bring it up on screen for you guys. Jeremiah 29. It says in verse 10, For thus says the Lord. When sa- <laughs> this, is, this is definitely the wrong verse. Hold on. I think I wanted to start in verse 11. Oh, no, no, no. I wanted to start in verse 10 for a reason. I'm establishing that this is for Israel. Uh, this, thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So the you here is clearly Israel. They've been taken captive into Babylon. He goes, I'm going to go. I'm going to visit you. And he's going to help them. He's going to take them from Babylon back into the land, into the land of Israel. Verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, verse 11 is the verse we all know, right? I, I quote 20, Jeremiah 29, 11. Everybody knows this verse. But it's, a plan, it's about plans for Israel, isn't it? Yes, it is. Directly, this is about Israel. God's like, I know my plans for you. I'm going to prosper you. Not everyone on earth. Israel. Not even Israel of all time. Israel, you in Babylon, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to prosper you. And there will be a future prosperity for Israel for all time. But not for every Israel, for all, every Israelite for all time at every moment. It's a future thing. Uh, then it says in verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Then it goes on. Now we quote these sometimes out of context, but let's read on. He says, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from the pl- from uh, to the place from which I sent you into exile. So intermingled are these promises we often claim, and then there are these other contextual things that are only about Israel. So how does this work as a Christian? Uh, some people, they just throw out Jeremiah 29, 11. Stop saying Jeremiah 29, 11. It's not in context. It's only for Israel. I say this. The promise, I'll leave it on the screen for a little bit here. The promise initially for Israel is absolutely true for Israel, but... It does give us, we're not abandoned there. We don't just lose it. It gives us principles that are true for us. What principle is true for me as well? Well, look, God, he called Israel. He set them aside. He has a future plan for them. He's chastening them, yet it's not over for them. Now, do I find myself in similar situations sometimes? Yeah. And do I know that God, if I'm in Christ, that he has glorious plans for my future? Yes, he does. 
Is it a plan to bring me out of Babylon back into the land of Israel? No, you know, like definitely not. But definitely God has plans for my future. I know what they are. I have New Testament teaching that supports that. And that's how I apply this and make it a principle for me. God didn't bring us out here to kill us like they thought when they left Egypt. Instead, he's brought us out here for a purpose. Well, God called you into Christ. And though times may be tough, though things may be hard, it's for a purpose. And there is a land that you are going to metaphorically. And it is the eternal glory of God that we will be sharing forever. So um, I draw a principle out of that. I can get principle out of verse 13 as well. If it's true that when Israel seeks the Lord and finds him, that it's because they're seeking him with what? All of their heart. You know, this is probably, it's pretty reasonable to say that God does this for everybody. That God's, God's a God who, when we seek him with all our heart, he reveals himself to us. That's a good principle. Yes, it's a promise to Israel, but I can apply it to me because it's a principle that's generally true. Um, so that's an example of how we can do this. Um, Another uh, another example I'll, I'll share while I'm on, on topic, because I think this is a really relevant question. I think it's good. I think a lot of people have the same question, is um, here in Genesis 12. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, so Abram, he's the guy being spoken to, uh, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, and then it goes on, I'll bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, I have seen, rarely, but I've seen people try to use this verse as a promise for themselves. It's not, right? This is a promise for Israel. It relates to me because who am I? I'm part of the all the nations of the earth that's blessed by what God does through Abraham. He brings Jesus through Abraham. But for me to just run up and claim verse 2, God's going to make me a great nation. He's going to expand my borders. God's going to bless me. He's going to make my name great. I'll be successful and well-known and powerful and rich. And it'll be for his glory. And to use Genesis 12, that's not just drawing a principle out of a text, right? That is just hijacking something that's communicating a truth about Jesus, a truth about the gospel. um, And that's trying to apply it to me. Because if I'm going to apply verse 2 to me, then guess what? My name needs to be Abram. And I have to leave where I live. And I have to go to some land that God will show me. Um, which I don't recommend <laughs> you doing that. I don't think that's the point of the Genesis passage. So there are principles, but we can't just recklessly hijack whatever we want. Um, the principle I get from Genesis 12 is the blessing on Abraham is meant for everyone's benefit. That's just a plain principle. And that that blessing comes in Christ. You want God's blessing, you need to be in Christ. But it won't be the same as what came upon Abraham. Um, so the, the New Testament teaching actually really helps clarify this issue. And I want to also recommend to you that you go and look at, um, Sheriston, that you look at the um, how to understand the Old Testament or how to understand the Old Testament law playlist. Again, I'll put a link in the video description to that teaching. It's a two-part teaching and um, it's, it's a little bit of work to get through, right? Some would consider it boring, but it's really fruitful for giving you sort of the, the, the lenses, or, or I should say like the, the cheat sheet for how you can understand the Old and New Testament and how they come together. And it'll, it'll make your Old Testament Bible study, I think, a lot more fruitful and more beneficial. So I'll put that link in the description, how to understand the Old Testament law. Uh, the next question is from Heather. And Heather asks, Hi Mike, I have a new friend who grew up her life 
her whole life until 17 as a Jehovah's Witness. She's now 24 and Christian. She just told me that while she no, is no longer a JW, nor does she believe in their beliefs, she still uses her New World Translation Bible as her primary Bible. I asked her why she uses that and told, uh, and she told me that it was, uh, it's what she is familiar with since she grew up with it and holds the sentiment, it holds sentimental value. Forgive me, I'm stumbling over my words. I've been talking for a while. Should I be concerned that she still uses that translation? I recently gave her an NIV study Bible that I had so she would have a more accurate translation, but convincing her to use it may take some explaining. What do you suggest? Thanks. Um, okay, so does it matter? Let me answer your questions. Does it matter? First, yes, it really, really does matter. Um, the New World Translation has specific places where it purposely twists really important biblical concepts. And so um, it does matter, but it's not every place. It's not as though every biblical doctrine is compromised because it's not, but, but the, those places do exist. So I think it really does matter. Um, the problem is, like you said in, in your question, you know the answer. The reason why she's using it, she's comfortable with it. We like what we know. You know, I, I'm one of those guys. I go to a restaurant and what do I order? I probably order whatever I ordered the first time I went there and I order it every time I go because it was good and I liked it and I like what I like. And so we just like what we like. We like what we know. So um, let me give you a couple uh, possible ways to help her out with this. Here's a conversation you could have. Um, you just hit her up and say, hey, friend, um, why? Can I just ask? And you ask as a friend. You ask without, without portraying the vibes that get, you know, the awkwardness going in the conversation. But you just say as a friend, you say, hey, could you tell me what your reasons are for why you like to use the New World Translation? And probably she'll share with you, well, I'm just used to it. Well, the reason why you ask the question, though, is you, you want to have that in her mind, that she's remembering. I'm just using it because I'm used to it, because I'm familiar with it. But then you're going to remind her of a few facts. So you might tell her, so you know that the Watchtower was wrong in their doctrine, right? And she'll be like, well, yes, of course I know that. That's why I left. And you know the Watchtower is the same group that made the New World Translation. Yes, I know that. You see, I'm just trying to tie in her mind the idea that, hey, the Watchtower, they gave false teaching. They made this translation. Just point it out to her. Um, it might be worth it. Just ask her. Say, it might be worth it to get used to using something else. You might even ask her, do you think if you use another Bible for a few years, you might end up being used to that one? Because that's the roadblock, right? Um, then finally, you might just, if, if, if all else fails, you might just tell her, hey, will you at least consider using multiple translations? So not looking at only one translation, the New World Translation, because you know that they twist things. And hopefully she'll at least do that. And then she'll start to notice on her own. She'll be like, it's written this way here, this way here. Truthfully, the New World Translation is difficult to read in a lot of places. So the NIV or another translation is going to be a lot easier for her. So that'll probably naturally drag her to the new to the, the new international or to whatever version. Um, she'll probably naturally move over to those other versions because of that, because of the ease. But in addition, I have one other thought. Take her to specific passages and show them to her in multiple translations. Just sit down and say, let's have a little study together. Go to John 1.1, read it in the New World Translation, and then read it in, you pick, five, six, seven other translations. Just go ahead and read it in them. Go to Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17, read it in the New World Translation, and go look at it in like seven other translations. Do the same thing with Titus 2.13. So I give you John 1.1, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17, and Titus 2.13. And with her, discover the differences and maybe her seeing how consistently this this is portrayed uh, will help her to see the need to move away from the new world 
All right, next question. This is from First Name, who uh, thought it was funny when uh, YouTube said, put your first name here. He wrote first name. Uh, did Jesus break the Sabbath? Thank you, by the way, for the videos. It helps my Bible study. Good. I love I love helping Bible study. I like doing Bible study. So, did Jesus break the Sabbath? I, I can tell you right now. This is this is why this this comes up. It's John five eighteen. Let's look at it right now. John five eighteen, and it says, "This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God." This is one of my go-to passages when I'm witnessing to Jehovah's Witnesses. And um, here's how the conversation often goes. Jesus made himself equal with God. The Bible says he made himself equal with God. And the Jehovah's Witness says, Nuh-uh. That's only what the Pharisees thought he was doing. And then I say, No, look at the text. It says he made himself equal with God. It doesn't say the Pharisees thought that. You don't want to add to the Bible. Then the careful observant Jehovah's Witness says, Ha-ha. But if you're saying Jesus made himself equal with God, then you also have to say Jesus broke the Sabbath because John 5.18, it says, he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So is Jesus a Sabbath breaker? And my answer is yes. Yes, he is. But let me explain, because I, I, I guarantee you, somebody just clicked off the video and unsubscribed my channel just now. But, but now let me explain what I mean. He did not sin, but he did break the Sabbath. And not because something was wrong with the Sabbath. Um, uh, here's, here's how this works. Um, in John 5, you can read the context. So John 5 verses 9 through 18, the story is where Jesus, he, he, he heals a man. And then the man goes and they discover that he was healed on the Sabbath. The Pharisees and scribes, or Pharisees in particular, they're upset with Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath. As in, the work Jesus did was a supernatural healing. That was, that was the actual thing Jesus did. Um, give me two seconds to find my spot. I, I, I hit a button and lost my place in my little Word document here. Um, okay. So Jesus, he heals on the Sabbath, meaning the work that was done was a supernatural healing work. So one possible solution to this problem, I don't think it's really a problem, is um, that the work that was done was supernatural. It wasn't physical. Jesus didn't physically work on the Sabbath. He miraculously healed on the Sabbath. And then he goes on to explain, hey, God's been doing miraculous things this whole time on the Sabbath as well. So, of course, I can do it. And, I'm, and now he makes himself equal with God. That, so one explanation is it wasn't a physical work. It was a supernatural work. It broke the Sabbath, but it was supernatural, so it's okay. That's one possible explanation. There's another explanation, and that is that the Jews had added unbiblical policies onto the Sabbath. They still called it the Sabbath, but they made it way more strict than it really was. So it says he broke the Sabbath, but what he broke was their Sabbath laws that go beyond the scripture. Now we know Jesus rebuked them frequently for adding to the text, right? Adding to the commands of God. You, you teach uh, the doctrines of men as though they are the commandments of God. He, he complained about them. So Jesus doesn't break the Sabbath as in God's laws in the scripture. He breaks the Sabbath as in the additions men put on the scripture. So for instance, if I go to Israel today and I walk into an elevator, the elevators on the Sabbath, <clears throat> for the most part, the elevators, I don't know if it's every elevator, but they, there's no buttons. The elevator or the buttons there, but they don't work because you're not allowed to push an elevator button on the Sabbath. That's considered work. So the elevators just go to every floor. All Sabbath, they just go up and down. So you get in, if you're on the 10th floor, you're going to wait nine floors, boom, then you get off the elevator. That's how it works. If you want lights on, you leave them on. That's considered breaking the Sabbath. Now, is it biblical? 
that turning a light on or hitting a button is breaking the Sabbath? No, this is the traditions of men added to the, to the text of the Bible. Do they still call it breaking the Sabbath? Yes. So Jesus healed a crippled man. Is that violating the biblical Sabbath? No. Is it violating the pharisaical additions to the Sabbath? Yes. Jesus broke the Sabbath, but he did not sin. This interpretation is consistent with the text, but it also keeps intact the context where it simply says, he really broke the Sabbath and he really made himself equal with God. And uh, you're going to want this under your belt if you're going to talk about John chapter 5 with a Jehovah's Witness. It's going to have to come up. So there it is. Uh, I get that question all the time on my Jehovah's Witness video. Um, well, several of my, my JW videos, but one in particular. All the time on my, uh, what do you say when <clears throat> Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door? Okay, we're going to look at another question. And this question is from Halver. I, you know what? This is in the longest Q&A in the world, if you're still with me. Props. <laughs> you get credit. All right, Halver says, Again, Mike, you dirtbag, you never replied. Why weed is different to alcohol. Um, just, I'll just say this. Halver, you didn't do this too bad, but, but a lot of people do this. They're abusive in the comments section, man. They're rude. Uh, I generally ignore rude comments. However, I don't think yours was really rude, but I think you're just trying to say, hey, Mike, I did ask you about this and you never replied. So let me explain why weed is different than alcohol and why I don't consider the, the Bible's uh, permission to use alcohol as permission to use weed. I'll explain that. But first, let me say this. I'm sorry I didn't reply. Uh, the reality is I'm not able to reply. I have too many questions coming in. Just while I'm filming this video, all these comments have come in on my YouTube channel. And I don't even have time to read all of them, let alone reply. So it's not that I don't want to. It's not that it's not worth it. And it's not that you're not valuable. It's I just can't physically do it. I wouldn't be making any videos if I just replied to comments all the time. So I reply occasionally when I'm able to. Um, so why is weed different to alcohol? First off, weed affects us differently than alcohol. Um, just like morphine affects us differently than alcohol, aspirin is different than alcohol, tobacco is different than alcohol, chocolate is different than alcohol. All of these things are different, so they can't be lumped in together. It's not like every drug is equal and the same. Um, definitely not, not the way it is. Like cocaine, not to be used in moderation, obviously. So what about weed? Um, the real problem, uh, one of the problems in discussing weed and discussing pot, which I have done some actual research on the issue, is there are interest groups out there putting out misinformation and skewing stories, and money is their primary motive. And I'll be, just be honest, people who want to promote pot are the ones who have the financial motivation. Those who want to stop the sale of pot um, or the use of pot or, or discourage it, they're not making money off of that. But there's a lot of groups out there, a lot of them, who are making a ton of money off the sale of pot and off the use of pot. And I'm talking about recreational use, casual use, use for even in moderation, so to speak. Money is out there. And so personally, I'm very skeptical of medical claims of those who say that pot cures cancer and pot does this and pot does that. And now look, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm highly skeptical of those claims because when I've tried to get details on those things, it seems like it's just a, a bag of tricks. You know, it just seems like it's just misrepresentation. And I happen to know that when they were trying to push through cigarettes years ago into, into the people's hands, they literally ran commercials saying that cigarettes would improve the health of your throat, would make you feel better, would calm your nerves, and would, I'm not kidding, cure cancer. These were one of the medical claims they said about cigarettes, and they had doctors sign off on it. Why? Because there was a lot of money in selling them, 
So when you're going to make money off of it, it's easy to get medical proof that it's going to heal whatever. So personally, I just tend to be skeptical because of the, the, the history of, of cigarettes in particular. Um, also, I really think people downplay the negative consequences of smoking pot. Um, research gives me good reason to think this. For one, uh, pot nowadays, you know, marijuana nowadays has more THC, that, that drug that's in it, has about 10 times the amount that it used to have back in 1960. So we're talking one joint today is like smoking 10 joints in the 60s. So all of a sudden the idea of moderation doesn't seem like a reasonable possibility. It's like one puff and you've got a radically increased amount of this drug in your system. Um, also, I know for a fact that the that pot causes, and I encourage you to do your own research on this, but causes serious negative psychological consequences in people. Because I've done counseling for years and have met several people who've had serious negative psychological consequences from being regular pot users. Um, it's, it's known to have a link to schizophrenia. I mean, that's not the case for the person who has occasional and biblical use of alcohol, which I don't even drink, right? But I have a teaching online about alcohol where I lay out the biblical, the biblical truth of the issue. But I don't think it applies to pot, and these are my reasons. Um, even occasional use of, of, of pot, it gets you too high to be considered moderation, and it has major psychological consequences. You're not sober-minded. That's a biblical principle you're violating. And there's a common sense aspect to this, right? Like you're going to inhale smoke, you hold it in, your body rejects it, you cough, you throw up the first time. This is supposed to tell you something, right? Like there's something wrong with this. Your body doesn't like this. Um, so it's not it's not moderation. It's not healthy. It's it's none of those things. Um, not to say it has no medicinal uses, but I'll come to that in a second. Also, I, I've seen this in action. Um, every pothead I know has had negative consequences as a result of them smoking pot. All the ones who've quit smoking pot will readily admit those negative consequences. All the ones who continue to smoke pot will deny those consequences all day long. Why? Because they want to keep smoking pot. That, that's what it looks like to me. So give, I'll give you an example. I, I, I was I'm, Formerly, I haven't been doing it recently, but I'm a domestic violence counselor. I mean, I'm certified to counsel people who've been convicted of committing domestic violence. It's a pretty interesting <laughs> and difficult job. Um, so I'm, I meet with a group of guys, and guess what almost every guy who enters this program has? A drug problem. I mean, it's almost every guy that enters a DV program has a drug issue, right? It's Vicodin, it's it's hard drugs, or it's pot. And most of them, it's pot and painkillers. Pot and painkillers, number one issues that they deal with. This is a room full of guys that smoke pot for the most part. Now, I remember sitting with my room full of guys. I've, I've done this a couple times, and I asked them. I said, you have 10 guys who you're offering a job. And five, you, but you've only got five positions open, right? So five of the guys, they're they're not pot smokers and they're highly qualified. The other guy, they're five pot smokers and they're equally qualified. So all ten are equally qualified. Five smoke pot, five don't. Who do you hire? And every one of the guys in my group says, I hire the guys that don't smoke pot. Because you know, <laughs> like, why are we arguing? You know, casual, like recreational pot use is not okay for Christians. Like I don't I don't see any wiggle room here. If I'm wrong, someone should show me and prove to me that I'm wrong, but the it's medicinal. And in, in fact, let's talk about the medicinal side of things. If something's medicinal, does that mean you should use it for non-medicinal purposes? Morphine has a medicinal purpose. 
Does that mean I can just take morphine because, well, I feel better. It helps me. I'm bipolar and I take morphine and I feel better now. I, I don't think that this is a legitimate way to think about things. Um, if, if you get a, a prescription for, for your morphine, is this okay? I, no, I don't think it is. Um, medical doesn't mean it's okay to now go smoke it. In fact, medical doesn't even require smoking it. They have medicinal uses of this stuff that they've got after extracting the THC or the drug element and then still, still having, they say, medicinal uses. Good, go for it. I don't even have a problem with medicinal use of, 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 uh, of pot, but we should make it as non-druggy as possible, we should use it as little as we need to, and we should stop pretending that a backache means you can go to the backyard and smoke pot every day. I mean, this is just irresponsible for Christians who name the name of Christ to be not be sober-minded. Um, I don't think pot is a, is a replacement for self-control. And I do. I feel passionate about this, and I'll tell you why. Not because I'm, I'm hitting you at all. You just want to know the answer to my question. However, this isn't about you. But I live in California. I live in the land of potheads, okay? And I have seen many people go down that path and it breaks my heart. So I feel passionate about it because I look around the world and I see misinformation, deception, and bad reasoning leading people down this path to, um, to something that causes them not to be sober-minded, compromises their walk, changes their character, potentially causes psychosis issues. And um, yeah, I've known people, personal counseling people who've, after quitting using pot, they suddenly were able to see clearly. As a result of pot, their kids will tell you. Um, gosh, ask ask the kids of a pothead if smoking pot is okay. There you go. Um, they know. They know. Unless they're potheads too, because you're always defending the thing you're doing. So I, I, I think that, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's all I'll say about that. I probably said too much, and forgive me. If you disagree with me on this issue, um, feel free to disagree with me. Feel free to even tell me what I got wrong. But um, but beware if you're defending your own drug use. If that's what you're doing, then that's don't do that in the name of Christ. Um, I will put a link in the description of this video where I do my video on alcohol and what the Bible really teaches about alcohol and how it can be used in moderation. And I hope now you understand why I don't think that applies to weed. Um, I have a question also, another one from Brian, uh, Brian Emus. He says, hi, Mike. Many people say when Jesus said, he came uh, for the lost sheep of Israel. That was a, Jesus made that claim. I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That he meant he only came for the Jews. Christians say that the woman Jesus was talking to when he said this was having her faith tested. It doesn't actually say that in the Bible. She's being tested. So is there any way of proving this, uh, that that was what Jesus was doing? And is there any other scripture that proves Jesus came for the whole world? Um, so, okay, Brian, I'm totally with you. This was not a test of her faith in that sense. Um, in fact, I mean, maybe her faith, her faith was being tested, but that doesn't mean Jesus didn't mean what he meant when he said he came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Rather, I would say what Jesus is saying here is in my first coming, in my initial coming to this earth, I'm coming and I'm ministering during that three, three and a half year period to the Jews specifically, right? Jesus never left Israel. He pretty much focused all of his ministry on Jewish people almost entirely. He never spoke to a full Gentile audience, never even tried. And so this is, this is, this is really to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. That's what it is. But is the gospel, is Jesus' death and resurrection, is his coming for the world? Yes. He came for the world, but he came to Israel. Maybe that's a good way to put it. He came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He came for the world. For God so loved 
the world he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, right? That in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Um, so we have good scripture to support all this. To the, to the Jews, for the world. Why? To fulfill the promises of God. Uh, God had simply promised that he was going to come in that sense. In fact, I'll, I'll give you a scripture for this. It is Romans 15, 8. And there it is on the screen. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So it's about fulfilling promises. I said I was going to do this. I'm doing it. I'm coming to the Jews. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So Jews and Gentiles are included in salvation, but his initial coming was for the Jew. Uh, or to the Jew, pardon me. Not for, but to the Jew. So I deal actually with this concept extensively in my Romans series. So what I'm going to do, uh, I'm putting lots of links. I'm going to put a link to the entire Romans series, if you're interested, in the video description here. And you can listen to every one of those studies because that's you got nothing better to do with your life, I know. Uh, so I'll put the whole link there. The reason why is because the issue comes up a lot in the book of Romans. And once you understand Jewish and Gentile dynamics, the entire Bible makes more sense to you. So it's really worth the time uh, laboring over this issue to learn it better and better. Um, okay, next question is from Jesus Freak. This is our 17th person. I got so many questions, you guys, and I can't even get to them all. There was over 30, and I just can't. I can't. But I'm doing my best with this extra long video. Jesus Freak says, how important is the Hebrew language to understand the Bible correctly? Should we learn Hebrews to examine the Bible better? Um, I think you mean learn Hebrew, uh, like the language Hebrew, to examine the Bible better. Um, on one side, it's incredibly important to know uh, Hebrew to understand the Bible um, because it's written in, in Hebrew, a lot of it, right? The Old Testament, Hebrew, Aramaic. But on the other side, I'll say this. We have lots of guys who do understand Hebrew really well and they've created wonderful, accurate, thoughtful, scholarly translations with commentary, with notes, with explanations for why they did this and did that for their translations. And so you have, in English, all the resources you really need. In my humble opinion, I do not really know Hebrew. Definitely don't. So let me put it this way. If not knowing Hebrew means that you can't understand the Bible, then you probably shouldn't listen to my studies. So maybe you won't now, but, but my, my thought is this. You can, you can get out of our really great English translations, multiple translations, multiple renderings of these Hebrew words. You can get a great representation of the exact meaning of the original text. And with commentaries and good resources and being able to, and something I am good at is looking at these resources to see um, theological dictionaries and, and, and various Hebrew resources, Greek resources. With all this kind of stuff, you can definitely tap into the knowledge of those who know those languages and uh, and get a lot out of it. So you don't really need to know it. In fact, 95 times, 99 times out of 100, when you take a text and show it to a scholar and say, in the Greek or in the Hebrew, what is it saying? They're just going to hand the text back to you and they're going to say, it's saying what it says in the English. <laughs> That's what it's saying. You're not getting this deep, deep stuff. It's neat. It's interesting. I like to flavor my teaching with a little bit of language information when it's relevant. Most of the time, there's nothing to share because English, our English is a good translation. Um, next question, and this is something that I think is really important. Um, and I do not know how to pronounce. Uh, I cannot pronounce your name. Uh, Lichka. I'll just call you Lichka. Um, so 
where was, or excuse me, was there baptism prior to John the Baptist? And if not, do we know how the Jews viewed his baptism prior to Jesus's resurrection? Really neat question and good on you for thinking these things through and asking the kind of questions most people don't think to ask. Um, so was there baptism prior to John? Um, yes, there was baptism in different cultures. Um, so there's Hellenistic or, or non-Jewish baptisms that went on back in the day, but they don't really apply. Um, these baptisms didn't relate. They weren't really religiously significant the way John's baptism was and, and the Christian baptism is. And um, John's John's Jewish. There's there's a Jewishness to Christianity. Like we got to get this down. There's a we're a Jewish religion. Christianity is a Jewish religion. You know, this is what we are. We're grafted in. You know, as as Gentiles. Uh, for those of us who aren't Jews, who are just completed or full Jews, you know, who fully have trust in the in the Messiah. Um, so, the what the world did with ritual washings doesn't really apply to John's baptisms, but the Jewish baptisms do. And and here's all you really need to know about this. Uh, Jewish baptisms in that time were baptisms for proselytes, Gentiles who wanted to become Jewish. They would get baptized and then they'd become Jewish. How does this shed light on John's baptism? Well, in the Malu, the cultural environment he's in, he's going into Jewish lands and he's telling Jewish people that they, Jews, need to get baptized to repent and get ready for the coming of Messiah. So he's calling them to repentance. This is like all have fallen short of the glory of God. Even you, Jew, you need this. You need repentance and you need faith in him who is to come. So he's really, really bringing in the gospel message and preparing them for the Lord. That's what that is. So, I mean, just imagine how you'd feel as a Jew. Someone's telling you, you got to do what people do to become a Jew. What am I not a Jew? No, you're a Jew, but, but you have to repent of your sin. Yeah, your Jewishness is not enough. You need the Messiah. You need the Savior. And so... Um, that's the context of baptism. It was a proselyte thing, becoming a Jew. And that's, that's, that's how, how he used it, I think, um, to touch into the psyche of the, of the first century Jew, to be like, man, you need to repent. He was, this is one of the reasons probably why he offended people so badly. Now, there is another group in the first century that did baptism. They're called the Essenes. E-S-S-E-N-E, -S -S -E -E, Essene. And the Essene movement are the people that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, tucked them away, stored them in caves, and then we found them in the 1940s, 1948, I think it was? Was that? No. Anyway, what, um, 66, oh, 48 is when Israel became a nation. It might have been in the 60s when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm totally blanking on the number right now. 67? Someone will tell me. Um... But the, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls are really important, really significant. They just copied a bunch of documents and kept them, many of them being biblical documents. Um, but this group, the Essenes, were this weird, cultic, doomsday group who lived away from the rest of society, and they did baptisms all the time. The reason why their baptisms don't relate to John's baptisms, and this is important because people, people skeptics in particular, they like to pretend that John was an Essene or Jesus was an Essene. But let me just tell you a couple of facts about the Essenes since we're bringing up baptism here. The Essenes uh, didn't do proselyte baptism, nor did they do baptism once. They baptized over and over again, multiple times every day. They would wash themselves ritually. So this wasn't about a Christian baptism at all, not even similar. Um, also, they were a weird doomsday group who didn't believe in marriage, so they would have died out if nothing else happened to them. There was no marriage. Marriage was forbidden, and they were all guys. Um, so obviously, this is not related to John or related to Jesus 
but I'm glad that they copied on all those documents for us to have nowadays. So I have another question, and that is from Don. Don asks, this is actually the last one, which is good because my brain's about to spill out of my ear. Don Elizabeth says, hi, Mike, could you cover the Catholic Church? If baptism's necessary to being saved, how to know what God's telling you, when and what you're, you are, are your feelings on the holidays? Take care and thanks. <laughs> oh, Don, you ask so much of me. Um, okay, so I'm going to give you a couple things, Don. I, I can't answer everything, but um, in the comments, or in the, not, not the comment, but the video description, I will put a link to a series. I have a playlist on Catholicism. And on that, I have a ton of stuff on Catholicism. So check out that playlist, look through that. Um, it may very well answer, will I cover the Catholic Church? I absolutely have covered it very much. And so I encourage you to check that out. I think it's very useful. I've put a great deal of research and work into producing it and trying to make it accurate. Um, the next thing you asked uh, was about baptism. I'm actually next week, if it works out, we're planning on next week recording a video, me and a gentleman named Dean Meadows, on the topic of baptism. We're going to have kind of a debate on the issue of baptism. So just wait a week and we'll put that out there and hopefully it will answer your questions. Um, and uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel if you haven't already and hit that little bell icon. So after you subscribe, there's a little bell. If you don't click the bell, you might not get notified when I put up videos, but if you click the bell, you'll get every video I put up, you'll know about if that's what you want. And then um, you also asked about holidays. Um, holidays, I have actually done some teaching on holidays. I do think it's, a, it's entirely okay to celebrate holidays as long as you do it as a Christian and in a godly manner and all that sort of thing, depending on the event. Like I'm not gonna celebrate the uh, whatever, you know, something evil. I'm not going to celebrate those things. Um, so for me personally, like Halloween, I don't, I don't celebrate Halloween. I don't see what there is to celebrate, but I love using it to share the gospel. Christmas, I celebrate. And I actually have uh, a couple videos on Christmas, and I'll put links to those in the video description. The first video is about whether Christmas is pagan or not. The second one is myth-busting about Christmas, which just helps you appreciate and celebrate the holiday better. Um, I think that there's a biblical case for celebrating holidays, and I do that in my first video, Is Christmas Pagan? I talk about that in detail. Now, if you have a question I have not answered, I encourage you to check out BibleThinker.org, and on that site, you can actually search my videos and look at the, the topics and look at the series that I've got, and I'm hoping it's a blessing to you and useful to you. I, however, am totally spent, so I'm going to actually drink some of this water I keep talking about. And then I'm going to try and take a little bit of time off. So God bless you guys. Um, pray for me as I prepare, if, if it's still this week, as I prepare for this debate discussion on the topic of baptism. I'm really interested in it, and, it's, and it is important, and I want to do a good job. Uh, I'm also about to finish the book of Romans. Um, and then we're going to start into a new series, a shorter series, but on the book of Genesis, Jesus in Genesis. And that's something I'm very much looking forward to. And again, tomorrow I'll have a Wisdom in the Word video out. If you like this ministry, if you think what I'm doing is valuable and it's a blessing to your life, I would ask you to help support me by just clicking like, subscribing if you haven't already, and sharing the content and spreading it so that it reaches more people and is a bigger blessing to more people. You thought I was going to ask for money, didn't you? I wouldn't do that. All right, Lord bless you guys. Have a great day, and uh, thanks for watching. And for you who stuck around, good on you.